All right, what's up? Good morning, H2O. Good to see you guys. Uh, happy spring. I know it doesn't feel like it as much outside, but we have officially, uh, at least meteorologically, entered into spring. Um, Jake and Kath, thank you so much for uh, just sharing your heart with us this morning. We love you guys. Um, and man, it's just been, it's so cool to see you guys uh, responding to the call of God on your life. And uh, every single person in this room is called to be a missionary. Like, I, I hope that you guys understand that. You may not be uh, going to the Horn of Africa. Some of you might. Some of you might be going uh, overseas into all sorts of different places. I don't know uh, what the Lord has for each one of you, but I do know that if you are a Christian, you are a missionary. Like, God has called you uh, to be a witness for him in whatever circle you may find yourself in. And, uh, man, I, I'm so thankful for what you guys are doing and uh, as we need to pray, just like they were talking about, to, that, that God would raise up workers for the harvest, um, one of the, the other things we need to do is not just pray that those workers are raised up, but that those workers would love each other really well. Like, not just the people that they're going to, but each other. Because uh, when I, I uh, did some overseas missions, I, I was in Russia for six weeks. It wasn't nearly as long. I, I didn't move my whole life there, but I was there for a period of time. And... Uh, when I was going through all my training and prep to go over there, they were talking to us about the reasons why a lot of missionaries end up having to come home. And uh, the, the top two reasons, one is from sexual morality. They fall into some sort of sin while they're there. And then the other, I think this was actually the number one, was uh, team conflict. It, it was missionary teams of Christians, people that love the Lord, that are committed to each other, not being able to get along. And, and having so much conflict that the team literally falls apart. And, and the mission ends up failing. And uh, man, conflict is something that just is so present in our lives, isn't it? Like, how many of you guys experience conflict in, in your life? I, every single person in this room experiences conflict in their life on some level. If you live in relationship with other people for long enough, you will experience conflict. Uh, there's just no doubt about it. All right, every, every marriage is going to have conflict in it. Every friendship is going to have conflict. Every church is going to have conflict in it. This is, is kind of an unavoidable thing. And in some ways, conflict is actually not always bad, okay? Uh, conflict's not always bad. Sometimes it has the opportunity to strengthen us. And sometimes it, it, it's, it's really necessary, okay? We shouldn't just live our lives completely trying to be conflict avoidant. Jesus had plenty of conflict with the Pharisees, right? Like, read the Gospels. He's arguing with these guys all the time. Okay, the, the disciples, uh, they, they had plenty of conflict with the, the Jewish leaders. Paul, he had plenty of conflict with uh, people in towns. He'd go, he'd literally get driven out of towns and beaten and put in jail. Like, their lives were full of conflict too. And, and a lot of time that arose because they were standing firm in what they knew God had called them to do. And, and God's call on their lives brought them into conflict with this world which in, in many ways is under the, the influence and power of Satan. Okay, so sometimes uh, conflict is going to be necessary. It's not always bad. However, there are other times, plenty of times in our lives, that conflict is not the result of, of standing for something that's important, but rather it's simply the result of our own pride and selfishness. 
And man, this is the kind of, of conflict that there is no room for in the church. And guys, it, it, it has split churches. Like conflict over stupid, selfish, prideful types of things has split churches. It's led to divorces. It's ended friendships. Uh, there's all sorts of damage that has been done in our world and in the church through conflict over stupid stuff. Where, where people are not willing to lay down their pride and sacrifice for the good of others. And, you know, this kind of conflict was uh, something that we're going to be talking about this morning, that the Apostle Paul uh, really wanted to help the Roman church get out of. Okay, now, if you've been with us this year at H2O, we've been preaching through the book of Romans. We call it the book of Romans, but in reality, it's actually just a letter. It's a really long letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Rome. And uh, way back when we started this at the beginning of the school year, I said that kind of the thesis statement of Romans can be found in chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That's kind of the, the big theme of Romans. If, if you, I, I hope that all of you guys memorized that verse. I have it memorized in a different translation. But like, if, if everyone would say, okay, what's Romans about? That's really what it's about. It's about the, the power of the gospel to save for the Jew first and also the Gentile, okay? And uh, as we've gone through Romans, we've seen uh, this fact that everybody needs the saving power of the gospel. It doesn't matter what your, your background is. It doesn't matter if you're uh, a morally, like, morally upright person in the eyes of the world. It doesn't matter if you're like the biggest sinner ever. Whatever you are, you fall short of the glory of God and you are in need of his salvation, and the good news is the gospel provides that power for you to be forgiven of your sin and brought back to God, regardless of your background. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Jew. It doesn't, doesn't matter what, what kind of uh, family you come from, anything like that. All right? Now, there's something interesting about Romans 1.16. A lot of us are comfortable with this idea of the power of the gospel to save. Right? And, and so many, uh, probably the, the first eight chapters, we're just harping on that, harping on that. But then there's this part about where he says, for the Jew first, and then the Gentile. And that's where I think a lot of time we, we don't pay much attention to what's going on there. But that's actually been a major theme in Romans. If you've been with us, I hope I've been able to help you understand a little bit about this difference between Jews and Gentiles, and how God was bringing them together as one people. That's actually a really, really big theme of the book of Romans. Um, now, if you haven't been with us, just to give you a quick background, Jews and Gentiles are two different ethnic groups with very different religious backgrounds and traditions, all right? Uh, Jews, you could also call them Israelites. They had all sorts of um, practices that, that uh, they got from God. So like the Old Testament, they had that. They followed all these different kinds of laws. Um, their, their ancestors have been worshiping the Lord for thousands of years. Jesus was Jewish. And he came preaching to the Jews first. A lot of time we forget that too, right? Because we know that God has a heart for the nations, just like what Jake and Kath were saying. But we forget that he came to the Jews first, right? And because we forget that, if you're reading the Gospels, sometimes you come across a, verse that, a few verses that will confuse you if you don't remember this. Like look at this one in Matthew 15, 24. This is Jesus speaking. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. This is when a Gentile woman is asking him for help. Matter of fact, she has a demon-possessed daughter that needs help, and this is his response. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, he does end up helping her, but, but if, if we don't realize this priority that the Jew has first, then we actually kind of get confused by that. Or uh, Matthew 10, 
when Jesus was sending out his own disciples, this is before he was crucified and resurrected, this is before the Great Commission, uh, when he's just sending them out to do some ministry, he's given them power to heal the sick and drive out demons, uh, and this is what he says. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, these passages actually surprise us, right? Because we know that God has a heart for the nations. We live 2,000 years in the future, you know, from, from this time. And so we've seen how God's plan has unfolded. But there is this important aspect of how, like, the, the good news of the gospel is supposed to come to the Jews first. Okay? And uh, now we do see later in Revelation, every tribe, nation, tongue is going to be worshiping the Lord in heaven. The Great Commission, which Jake and Kath read for us, it reads different than what we read in, in Matthew 10, right? In Matthew 10, he says, don't go to the Gentiles, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Look at what he says in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So notice that this is different from what he told his disciples before his crucifixion and resurrection. Okay, now, it was in God's salvation plan to come to the Jews first. And, and their rejection of him is actually, was something that was significant. It was something that was actually going to open the door up to the Gentiles also to be welcomed in. Now, this didn't take God by surprise. We can look all throughout the Old Testament and see all sorts of stuff about how the Gentiles are going to be brought into the kingdom of God. Um, but ultimately, this rejection had to take place first. And so we saw in uh, Romans chapter 11, we went through 9 through 11, they were kind of those really difficult chapters to preach through. We saw this kind of working out of God's plan and how he, he has this sovereign choice of deciding who he's going to choose and when he's going to choose. And, and we've seen this idea that uh, Gentiles have now been grafted into the people of God. Okay, John, uh, the Apostle John puts this idea kind of succinctly in uh, the first chapter of his gospel, he says, he came to that which was his own, talking about the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So all this to say, we have a multi-ethnic church now, right? Like it's, it's full of Jews, it's full of Gentiles. Um, everyone that receives Christ is able to become a child of God. And this is a beautiful aspect of the gospel, right? That it doesn't matter what, you're, you're, what country you're from, what ethnicity you have, what skin color you are, any of that kind of stuff. And guys, we need to hear this message today. I know we don't think a lot about the Jew and Gentile divide, but we are still so divided culturally, economically, racially. We, we let all these kind of divides uh, be so important in our lives. And, and the church, God is saying, I'm bringing you all together into one family as my people. You see, the gospel is something that's extremely unifying, both vertically and horizontally, right? Like, we talk about how the gospel bridges this gap between us and God, that God is good and perfect and holy and we're not, and our sin has separated us from him. And when Jesus died on the cross, he did so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be brought back to him. It unifies us with him, what we might say vertically. But it also unifies us horizontally, right? Because not only are we brought to, back together with God, but we're, we're brought together to God. And with that, we're one, we're one family, right? So it's, it's not just this idea, being a Christian is not just this idea of, I'm right with God, but I got problems with people. No. When you're made right with God, he starts to bring you into right relationship with people as well. Jesus wouldn't separate these things. Look at how um, 
When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What do you say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Boom, he answered the question. But he went on. He said, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. He wasn't asked what the second greatest commandment was. But he didn't want to give the first one without the second one because the two things are really inseparable. As we come to be people that really love God, we have to become people that really love each other. And so one of the things that, that happens is w- when we're brought together into this one church and the people of God, we get all of these people from different backgrounds and cultures and preferences brought together. And guess what? When you have that, what happens? Conflict. You get conflict, right? People that have grown up a different way than you, people that ha- have maybe come from a different worldview than you, have diff- they, they like different foods than you do, they like different music than you do, they look different than you, they dress different than you, whatever it may be, God is bringing us together into one people. And when that happens, it's inevitable that there's going to be some level of conflict. And so what we need to see is, how is it that God has called us to live together as his multi-ethnic, multicultural people? that have all these different preferences. And that, that's what Paul is trying to help this both Jewish and Gentile church understand in the passage that we'll be reading today. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to hop into our scripture. Um, God, we love you, and uh, we just thank you so much that, that you're good, and that you are unifying, God, that you bring us together with you, and that you bring us together with each other. God, I ask that that would really be real. That wouldn't just be a concept, God, but that you supernaturally, even through your Holy Spirit, would be working in our hearts to bring us closer to you and to bring us closer to each other. God, we want to be a church that honors you. Like, we know you care about this so much, God, and I pray that uh, you, you would help us to care about unity the way that you do. So God, I pray that that you be with us as we read your scripture this morning. Uh, We know that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And and God, we just ask that uh, you would use it this morning to cut to our hearts and and to form us into people that are more like you. Uh, We love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so we have a ton of scripture I'm going to read through this morning. Um, But that's okay. You know, when the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy instructions, he was saying, hey, when you're waiting on me, while you're waiting on me, do these three things. He said the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Uh, so even if you zone out during my teaching because it's been too much, at least we're accomplishing something with the public reading of Scripture here. Uh, but no, we're, So we're going to read all of Romans chapter 14 and then the also half of chapter 15, okay? Don't worry, I'm not going to preach verse by verse through every bit of it, but it's impo- this is all a, a big section. That's, that's one thing. So we're going to read this all here together. <clears throat> Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. 
Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and encouragement they, may, uh, they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, so yeah, that, that's a lot of text. 
but I hope you see how it was really this kind of one major theme uh, that, that Paul was getting at through this. I'm not going to um, preach through every bit of it verse by verse. If you have questions about it afterwards, I'd love to talk with you about any specific questions uh, you might have. But instead, I'm just going to do the best I can to draw out some of the major things that I see here and, and how those things apply to, to what, how we should be living today. Uh, the first thing that I want to talk about is this idea of the weak and the strong. You see uh, Paul using this uh, the language. Uh, there there seems to be some people in this church that are considered to be weak and some that are considered to be strong. Uh, the weak seems to be a person that doesn't fully grasp the, the extent of their freedom in Christ. Okay, so they still restrict themselves in certain ways. Uh, they won't eat certain foods. Uh, they may not drink wine. Uh, they may feel like they have to observe uh, certain days as being special. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you're going to see all those things and you're thinking, oh, like th these are probably stemming from the fact that there's a lot of Jewish Christians in this church that are afraid to give up some of their old cultural practices, right? Like uh, the Old Testament, there are certain kinds of food that you were prohibited from being able to eat. Um, now, it talks about eating only vegetables here. Okay, the Old Testament never says that we should be vegetarians. Um, but sometimes, be, because there are so many restrictions about what you can eat and even how the meat was prepared, sometimes if Jews would find themselves living in a foreign land where they couldn't control any of those things, it was easier, easier to just not eat meat at all. Uh, so Daniel, he has a book that, that he wrote. Um, he, he was a guy that did this, for example. Uh, Daniel was a guy that was taken off into captivity in Babylon. He loved the Lord a lot, and so he just resolved to not eat any uh, meat at all, right? It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself in this way. He said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And so you think about some of these Jewish uh, Christians living in this foreign land in Rome. For some of them, they probably said, hey, we want to be so sure that we're following God's dietary laws that we're just going to be vegetarians. It's the easiest thing to do. Um, okay, there, there's also, there's no prohibition against responsible wine drinking in the Old Testament. Um, but some of the Jews may have been staying away from it because uh, it, it could be associated with pagan worship rituals that were going on. So that might have been why some people were trying to avoid that. Uh, also, in, in Judaism, there's specific holy days in the calendar, right? There's all these different kinds of holidays, but then the one that comes up most often is the Sabbath. Matter of fact, that's even part of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, um, that you're supposed to remember the seventh day, you're supposed to keep it holy and have it as a day of rest. This was a major part of the Jewish life. And uh, it seems that there were a lot of Jewish Christians in the Roman church that were not willing to, to give up this practice of keeping the Sabbath. So in all likelihood here, weak refers to primarily Jewish Christians that were still holding on to a lot of the practices that they had been following their whole lives. Imagine, your whole life you've gone not eating certain kinds of meat. Your whole life you've gone, you know, recognizing the Sabbath or celebrating uh, the Passover holiday or whatever it may be. It, you're, it's probably going to be hard to just give something like that up immediately. It's so ingrained in your mind that this is something that God really cares about and honors. Now we see that there's also this group called the strong. And the strong people were people that understood that the new covenant completely frees us from dietary and schedule restrictions. Okay, Paul included himself among this group that was willing to eat any food. He said, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. All right, this was a guy that 
grew, grew up with all the same dietary laws, but because the gospel had such a profound impact on him and he understood that he was invited into a new covenant with God and that these dietary laws were not part of that, he was okay to eat whatever meat that was there. The strong also realized that they, they didn't have to observe uh, any day as being particularly special. Okay, he says in 14.5, one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So it seems that the strong are fine saying, no, it doesn't really matter what day it is. I'm, I'm treating them all the same. And Paul seems to say that's a perfectly fine position to have here. All right, so in all likelihood, the strong were at least not, they were not restricting themselves to keeping the Sabbath, which was a major thing for uh, Jews in the way they worshiped. So in all likelihood, the strong here were probably mostly Gentile Christians that had no problem eating whatever they wanted or orienting their schedules however they liked because they understood the freedom that they had in the gospel. All right, and this would have been easier for them because they didn't grow up this way either. They grew up eating whatever they wanted and they grew up not having as many certain days that they had to keep to be special. Okay? So it seems that there's tension between the weak and the strong in the Roman church. Because as the church, what do we care about, right? Like one of the things that we really care about is glorifying God and living lives that are honoring to him. So you have this one group over here, the weak, that's convinced that, hey, one of the ways we honor God is by making sure we abstain from certain foods. One of the ways we honor God is by making sure that we recognize certain days as being special. And you have the strong over here saying, no, that's not honoring to God. We're, we're free to eat whatever we want. We honor him by actually exercising our freedom to eat whatever we want and giving him thanks for that. And we, we honor him by exercising our freedom to treat whatever day, however we want to, and giving him thanks for that. And so you see how there's a tension, a serious tension that could rise in a church like this. Now, I have to ask you, would you rather be weak or strong? <laughs> I think almost everyone would say I'd rather be strong, right? I have yet to meet the person that generally prefers weakness over strength. Uh, weak generally has a negative connotation. Strong generally has a, a positive connotation. Paul himself identifies with the strong crowd. So it does seem that one of these stances is more desirable. However, what's very interesting about this passage is that we do not see a single time a command for the weak to become strong. Isn't that fascinating? Like, it, 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 even though it does seem that one stance is actually maybe more accurate than the other, that's not the point of what Paul's saying. Because if we look at this and we see Paul identifies as strong, it seems that the gospel really does give us this kind of freedom, then wouldn't the natural conclusion be that everyone should, the, the strong people are right, move their way? That's not actually what it says, though. That's not the solution. The, the solution, rather, is to keep the most important thing the most important thing. Right? It's to actually remember what the kingdom of God is about. Loving God and loving others. And, and frankly, it doesn't matter that much what your view is on the food stuff. And, and on the, the different special days that you keep. Right? The whole thrust of this passage is to remember that the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is really about and to live in line with that. Okay, look at what he says in Romans 14, 17. I think this is a great uh, verse that kind of encapsulates what he's getting at. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's trying to help them remember, guys, you are getting caught up 
in stuff, honestly, that's, that's kind of not very important in the big picture of things. And you're letting this actually cause harm in the church because of your, you're having arguments about meat. You're having arguments about wine. You're having arguments about day. This stuff isn't that important. Like, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so I want this verse to really frame the rest of our time this morning because I think it's at the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate uh, with the whole passage. Right? So, so I'm going to talk primarily about, about righteousness and then how that leads to that peace and the joy. You know, righteousness refers to the quality of being morally right before God. And we know that we cannot achieve true righteousness on our own. Paul spent a ton of time in Romans helping us ex- understand that. There is no way we can achieve our own righteousness. This is something that's given to us through Christ. Look at this in Titus 3, 4-7. to I love this passage. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy— He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Okay, so we can't establish a righteousness on our own. And we know Paul actually comes down very hard on people who think that they can. So when these Jewish Christians, are, or, or who I think are the Jewish Christians, the, the weak that are, are restricting themselves from certain food and are still uh, keeping certain days as being special, I, I, there's no way that they were doing this thinking that that was going to be what makes them righteous. Okay, Because if they were doing it with that mindset, then Paul would attack it. Rather, I think they were doing it with that uh, simply because they thought that it was the best thing to do. And that it was still most honoring to God. It's kind of like how you and I, as Christians, we don't steal or lie. Why? Not because we think that if I, if I can just go my whole life without stealing or go my whole life without lying, I'll be righteous before God. No, I know I'm still guilty before God outside of the blood of Christ. But I still try to live my life in a way that I think is most pleasing to him. And so for a lot of these weak Christians, the life that they thought was most pleasing to God was to abstain from certain foods and, and to keep certain days as being special. Their heart was in the right place. Like, they loved the Lord, they wanted to honor him, they trusted in the gospel for their salvation, and they're saying, this is how we think that is the best way to do that. Right? We've been given new life, and we're called to live righteously. So Paul actually talks about how we are slaves to righteousness. He says that in Romans 6, 18. So righteous living is very important to God, and it has to be important to us as Christians. Okay, both the weak and the strong in the Roman church were trying to live righteously and honor God. It's important for us to understand that. And, and this is what Paul is getting at in 14.6 where he says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. They, they all had their hearts in the right spot. In, this, in, the say of, in the way of saying, the way I'm living is what I think is going to be most honoring to the Lord. And it's important to note here that neither side was in sin with the practice that they were choosing, okay? Unity is very important, but we must have unity in righteousness. Uh, And and so Paul is is trying to help them understand, guys, as long as your heart is for actually worshiping the Lord and honoring him, it doesn't matter. If you want to abstain from meat, that's fine. If you want to eat it, that's fine. If you want to recognize the Sabbath, that's fine. If you don't want to, that's fine. 
but, but so long as it's not an, a matter of sin. If, it's a matter, if there's a matter of sin that's there, we can't just have this attitude of unity at all costs. Okay? We have to have unity in righteousness. There are plenty of times scripturally that Paul calls people out to change. And to not just say, oh, well, we all just need to get along with each other. It's like, no, you need to change and pursue righteousness. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, he talks about kicking a guy out of the church that refuses to pursue righteousness. Okay? So, so yes, unity is very, very significant, and that's what he's trying to get them to. But it's unity in righteousness. Now, in neutral matters, what, or what the NIV translated here in 14.1 as disputable matters, where either stance is fine, we need to not let our own opinions cause us to fall into sin. Okay? And there are a few ways that that can happen. How is it that the righteousness of this church could be compromised even over neutral matters, like the eating and the drinking and the, the recognizing of days? The first is that it could cause them to judge each other. Right? This is a threat to righteousness in the church, is us judging one another. So in Romans 14, 13, he says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Both sides were doing something that was fine, but they were in danger of falling into sin if they started to judge the other side for not doing things the way they wanted. Judging another person is when you're looking down on them with an attitude of superiority. Okay? It's not, uh, it is the opposite of humility, okay? Uh, judging is something that we do to puff ourselves up and tear other people down. It's the opposite of love. Love seeks what's best for the other person. But when we judge, we have no concern for their, their well-being, but rather we're just trying to validate our own righteousness, okay? Lovingly calling out sin in another person's life is not the same as judging, we actually have a responsibility to call out sin in each other's lives and help each other seek righteousness. But that has to come from a place of genuine concern for the other person. Judgment comes when all you're really concerned about is yourself. And so since it's a sin to judge others, and one of the things that, that the kingdom of God is about is righteousness, then we want to avoid doing this. Okay? And man, in, in this particular church, they were judging each other over things like food. We probably don't do that as much, although I still find people can be weird about judging each other over food. Um, I, I don't know why that's as controversial. As, like, I don't know why people won't just let vegans and vegetarians be vegans and vegetarians. Like, it's fine. You can do that if you want to. Um, um, but man, there, there's like so many things that we divide ourselves over in the church where it's like we feel like we have the right way to do it and we look down on anyone else who does it a different way, right? So how about worship styles? Right? Like, I, I see churches judge each other over this all the time. Oh, well, our worship is better because we have cool lights and we have, um, you know, ambient guitar and, and piano going and whatever. And that's the right way to do it. And, oh, those, those people that sing hymns, they're, like, old and out of touch. And they're wrong. It's like, no, like, it's okay to sing hymns. It's okay to have cool ambient worship music. It's okay. I, I knew there, there was one time I talked to a Christian. He said the, the main worship they did was uh, rap at their church. That's pretty cool. Um, like, whatever, any of these kind of things are fine. They're, they're matters of preference. As long as our heart is actually worshiping the Lord, that's what matters. Okay, how about evangelism styles, right? Sometimes we get stuck in this idea of thinking, I have this particular way of doing evangelism, and this is the right way, and I'm going to judge anyone else who, who does it differently. I, I meet a ton of Christians that straight up judge anybody for street preaching. 
And guys, I, I realize a lot of the guys that street preach do it very poorly, okay? I understand that. If you have a problem with the content, which a lot of the time, there's reason to have a problem with the content. But the method in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, street preaching is actually a biblical method of evangelism. Just make sure that you're actually preaching good content and you're actually preaching the gospel. You know, or, or you might say, like, relational evangelism is the only way to do this. And, and, and if anyone else thinks that uh, something different, then, then they're just wrong. And guys, it's like we need to stop looking down on each other for maybe preferring different methods of evangelism. Some people like to, to do it more on the Internet. Some people like to build relationships more. Some people like to go do street evangelism through uh, preaching or just getting into random conversations, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter as long as your heart is actually for the Lord. How about Bible translations? Some people hold really strong opinions on the Bible translation they want, and they judge anybody that's using something different than they do. Okay? I know this is, of course, most popular with KJV users, but like, it can happen with, with uh, I've seen it happen with other people too. ESV is the only way to go, or, uh, oh, you read the message, you must not be a good... No. <laughs> okay. In all fairness, the message is not actually a translation, it's a paraphrase. Um, but, but whatever, like, there's, uh, we, we can start to get this attitude where we get really judgmental if, if somebody has a, just a different matter of preference. Okay, you might have noticed, I use different translations when I preach sometimes because I think there's a lot of good ones. Um, churches and ministries judge each other so much for so many different things all the time. And we really, really need to stop this. Like, like, once again, if something is actually sin, then let's call it out for sin, right? Like, if there's another group that claims to be a church or a ministry and, and they're actually doing false teaching or something like that, then great. We need, like, it's right for us to actually call that out and stand against that. But if, if it's another church or ministry that, that's, like, just actually preaching the gospel and it just looks a little bit different and they're doing things differently than we are, why, like, why do we judge them? Like, let's be committed to stopping that. I, I hate it when I hear people speaking badly of, of other churches, even in our area sometimes. Like, I, please don't ever let me hear you do that, okay? You know, if, if, there's, if there's actually a, a biblical issue or problem that's going on, then cool. I, I'd love to talk with you about that. But if it's like, oh, I don't like the way that they, uh, I don't know, did this outreach event or something like that, like, let's just learn to appreciate the fact that, that we can have different preferences, Okay? Let's not be people that speak poorly of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of different churches or ministries that might do things a little bit different than us. And I would say let's go one step further and actually do everything we can to build each other up and encourage each other. Guys, that, that, that's true for us here as a local expression, this particular body, H2O, uh, but also just like as the global church. Like, I, God's heart is for us to be so much more unified than we are. Like, we get so, like, tribal with, with, our, with our churches, our denominations, our, all this kind of stuff. It's like, I'm all for diving in deep and being meaningfully and deeply involved in one local expression of God's body. Okay, I'm going to encourage you to do that. But just because you dive in deeply and involve yourself deeply somewhere where that's your family, doesn't mean that you can't celebrate and empower and encourage all of your brothers and sisters that are outside of your immediate family. Right? So it's like if H2O is our immediate family here, guys, we got a lot of relatives in our extended family. And like, man, may we be people that are always trying to lift them up, encourage them, build them up. We are ultimately one family because God is our Father. And, and so I wanted to say, like, obviously, every family is going to do things a little bit differently, right? Like the family I grew up in, we take vacations to certain spots and 
And, uh, you know, we have a certain way of communicating and a certain type of food we eat and all that kind of stuff that might be a little bit different than what your immediate family has. And just like that's the same thing with churches. It might feel a little bit different. But ultimately, we need to realize, like, we have one God and one Father. So one of the great threats to righteousness in the church is being judgmental. Being judgmental over stuff that doesn't matter. And, and another way is that we can be stumbling blocks. Being a stumbling block is a major threat to righteousness in the church. To go back to Romans 14, 13, he says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Man, there are a lot of things that we can do uh, that are not sinful in and of themselves, but they might cause a brother or sister to sin. Okay? Paul expands on this idea a little bit in the next couple of verses. He says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Okay, there, there's no food that is in itself unclean. But if you have a conviction about something being wrong, whatever, maybe it's not food, maybe it's something, maybe you think it's, it's wrong to listen to any music that's not explicitly Christian or whatever, I don't know, there's all sorts of convictions that people have uh, that I may disagree with you on. But like if, if that's a solid conviction that you have, then you need to live in that conviction, right? And if you don't, you're actually in sin. Why? It's not because that thing itself has become unclean, right? The, the food isn't actually unclean. It, it's clean in and of itself. But the, the reason the person is in sin because they're eating it is because they have a conviction that God has told them not to, and they're disobeying that and doing it anyway. And in that, you're choosing whatever that, that thing is in the moment over your obedience to God, Okay? Now, we aren't that concerned about food these days, but I see this in some other areas. Uh, the, the, the most obvious one that would come up a lot is like alcohol, right? Like a lot of Christians have different ideas about al alcohol. Like I am convinced biblically that it is perfectly acceptable for Christians to drink alcohol so long as they're of age. Remember Romans 13 about obeying your government. Um, I, I'm very convinced of this. But there are a lot of Christians who think that drinking alcohol is not acceptable. My father-in-law is one of these people. He's very big on this. Um, I disagree, okay? But it, it, it's not as important for me to win the argument as it is for me to love him and others like him well, okay? So instead, what I really care about is not being a stumbling block to them. The last thing I want to do is try to get them to drink alcohol when they have a conviction not to. In that case, I'd be causing them to sin and I'd be a stumbling block for them. Right? I could say the same thing about gambling. Right? I like to play poker every now and then. It's like there's, there's some people that for whatever reason have a conviction, even though the Bible doesn't say it, that, that gambling is just explicitly wrong in and of itself. And like the last thing I'm going to want to do is, uh, is invite that person to, to poker night or something. Right? Like I want to do whatever I can to make sure I am not a stumbling block for that person. So sometimes that means that I actually need to be willing to sacrifice some of my own desires and my own freedom for the sake of my brother. There's all sorts of matters that we could list in this, but the principle we need to remember is to always put my love of others ahead of my own desires. Think about that. Always put your love of others ahead of your own desires. 
I need to be willing to sacrifice some of my freedom if it means that I'm going to help a brother out. Romans 14, 19 and 21 said this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Guys, this is really serious. I think a lot of the time we are so individualistic that we don't really give adequate care to thinking about how our actions affect other people. And, and guys, Jesus cares a lot about how your actions affect other people. Listen to what he said here in uh, Matthew 18, 6 to 7. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Guys, as the church, we want to be people that are building each other up. Helping each other to grow in righteousness, to, to look more like Jesus. The last thing that we want to do is say, I'm so important and my own desires and opinions are so important that I'm going to do something that tears you down. That's totally unacceptable for the church. And so in this particular case, he's saying, hey, don't do something that's going to tempt somebody to walk into something that they think that they shouldn't be doing. But I think you can extend this principle even a little bit further. Just this idea of thinking about how is it that my actions are affecting the righteousness of others. Right? So like when you think about the way that you talk, how, like how is that affecting others? The content of your speech. Like how positive or negative are you? Are you using filthy language? Whatever. Any of these kind of things, like th that might actually start to create sin in a brother. Just like even, even you... Um, having like a, a certain bad attitude could potentially cause sin in somebody else. Or like think about the, the way that you dress, for example. Like how much thought, when, when you're picking out your clothes in the morning, do you give to the way that your clothing choices are actually going to affect your brothers and sisters in Christ? I'll bet for a lot of us we don't think about that very much. But if we actually care about helping build each other up in righteousness, it might mean me saying, hey, you know what? I would rather wear this thing, but because I think that there's a, a, a chance that this might cause a brother or sister to stumble, I'm actually going to make a different clothing choice. Think about that. Do you care more about your own desires? Or do you care more about actually helping to build up the church in righteousness? People are taking like cues from you. You, you, you are teaching people, you are affecting people even if you think that you're not. So as we are a community of people that pursues righteousness, that really cares about righteousness, and cares about the building up of each other, guess what that leads to? Peace, right? The opposite of conflict. You see, when we actually start to care about the good of others, it starts to bring about a community that's full of peace. And this just makes sense, doesn't it? Like, when everyone is constantly putting the desires of others above themselves, thinking of others as more important than themselves, the way that Philippians 2 talks about, then you start to see how all of a sudden conflict starts to evaporate in the midst of these communities. And this is, this is how the church is able to be this, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, uh, lots of different backgrounds type of group that's brought together as one people, ultimately, that should have peace. Why? Because we're really good at denying ourselves, laying down our own desires, exalting God, and lifting up others. 
That's a great recipe for a community of peace, and that's what the church is supposed to look like. And guess what? When you have that kind of a community of peace, it leads to a joyful life, right? The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy. Life is a lot more joyful when you are not the most important person in the world, right? Like, I, so many of you guys, I, I think you're, you're struggling with joy because you're way too self-important, okay? And I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just trying to be honest. I, I know that's true for me. A lot of time what robs my joy is being way too self-important. L- like, when I'm thinking about myself all the time and everything that I need and all the things that I need to accomplish— and how important I am, and how other people should be treating me, that's a great recipe for robbing all of my joy. You know, uh, Tim Keller wrote this little book called Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I think we usually give it to all the seniors when they graduate, and like, I, I highly recommend this. There's such a freedom in, in stepping down off of the throne, making Jesus king of your own life, and you start to realize, man, when Jesus is king, life is a lot more joyful. I don't have to get upset all the time about people not treating me necessarily the way I want to be treated. You know, if, if everyone else doesn't think I'm the most important in the world, guess what? That's fine, because they're not going to. But now I don't think I am either. And I'm able to have a lot more joy in that. Um, an impactful book that I read when I was younger, I think it was in middle school, is The Purpose Driven Life. And the very first sentence of the book says, uh, it's not about you. It's like, man, what a, what a, what a great way to start that book. You want to live a life that, that's full of purpose and the way that God has designed you to be, the first thing that you need to understand is that this life is not about you. Like, we are called to be people that are about God. We lay down our lives for him, right? What did Jesus say? Anyone who wishes to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. He who lives no longer lives for himself, but for him who died and rose again. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. So you get this idea that our lives are not about ourselves. And that is one of the major parts of the recipe to a joyful life. And you know, all of this, righteousness, peace, and joy, comes in the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, living in righteousness, peace, and joy sounds great, but it's really difficult, right? Like, it's hard to fight self. Like, it's hard to not be really self-important. It's, it's hard to not want to get into conflict and all this kind of stuff and put your own preferences above of other people. And that's when it's like, we need the power of God to transform us. And praise God, he's given us that power. Right? When, when John kicked off kind of what we might call the practical section of Romans, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, what did it talk about? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, when you become a Christian, not only are you unified uh, vertically with God, like, we're, like we were saying, and, and horizontally with others, but, but part of what happens is he gives you his spirit. Like, what greater way is there to be unified with God than literally to have him dwelling in you? That's what happens as the Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit. And guess what? The spirit also helps with that process of horizontal reconciliation. Because the spirit starts to turn us into being people that are more like God. He starts to produce fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the kind of things that the Spirit starts to produce in us. And as that happens, we create this kind of community that reflects the kingdom of God. You see all this comes together. And so it makes sense even that as Paul is really trying to help this Roman church be unified, he's walked them through the gospel. He's helped them see everything about how they're saved. 
He's encouraged them in how they could live. And now, finally, as he's pretty much wrapping up the main teaching of Romans, we only have two weeks left in Romans, and it's going to be kind of uh, wrap-up stuff, although there's still really good stuff in the, the last chapter and a half. Um, but as he's kind of wrapping up his, this big argument that he has and, and telling them to be unified, that God has brought them together into one people, how does he, how does he kind of end it? He says here in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, God wants to fill us with joy and peace. And he wants to have an overflowing of hope by the power of the Spirit in your life. He's not short on power. He wants you to be a kingdom citizen. He wants us to be a kingdom community. He wants you to be righteous, right? Like Christ literally gives us righteousness at the cross. It's, it's, it's given to us. It's not something we earn. He wants us to have peace. He's made peace at the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took every sin and every debt that you owe. It was nailed to him, and, and his blood washes that away so that you could have peace with God and no longer be his enemy. And then you could have peace with each other. And you know, he wants you to have joy. The Spirit gives us joy because we have so much to celebrate. Right? Like the church should be a community of really, really, really joy-filled people. If we're living in the gospel every day, how could we not be full of joy? Like it's like, you know how everybody's kind of happy on their birthday when they get a lot of good gifts? Why are you happy? Like you, you, you realize the way that you're blessed. You realize what good gift you've been given. As a Christian, we get to wake up every single day remembering that we've been given the, the greatest gift that could ever possibly be given. We've been given fellowship with the Lord. We've been given eternal life. Every single day should be, can be better than our birthday, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's, that means life is easy, sunshine, rainbows, there's never hard stuff. No, but what I'm saying is that even through that hard stuff, you have joy, right? That, that's why Paul was able to write in one of his other letters, rejoice in all circumstances. It doesn't matter because whatever this world throws at you, it doesn't get in the way of your kingdom citizenship. It doesn't get in the way of the fact that you are a child of God. And so if you're a kingdom citizen, if you are a child of the king, then, then let's be people that live like it. Let's be a community that lives like that. And so as I close here, I just want to give you th these questions to think about. Uh, just, just so we don't get caught up in kind of some of these stupid divisions that distract us from being the kind of people that God has called us to be and the community of people that God has called us to be. So one is just like, do you care more about your own desires or the good of others? Like, honestly, check your heart. Do, do I care more about my own desires or do I care more about the good of others? Are there any changes that you need to make to love others better? Seriously, this is between you and God. Think about this. Are you being judgmental towards others over disputable issues? You know, th thinking that your way is, is the way that it has to be. Do you think about how your actions impact others around you? And are you being a stumbling block in any way? I really want you to consider this because we, we have to be willing to really process through these kind of things with the Lord if we want to be a community of people that reflects him the way that we should. So praise God that his kingdom is not about eating or drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy. All right, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's praise God. Um, Lord, we love you. I thank you um, that you love us, and I thank you that you've just...
called us to be this community of people uh, that, that love you in, in righteous unity, God. Um, I thank you for the way that like you, you just attack everything that is unholy and unhelpful in our lives. God, that, that you have not only uh, delivered us from the penalty of sin, God, but that you're delivering us from slavery to it. Like you've delivered us from the grip of it. That you've made us slaves to righteousness, actually. And God, just as, as we are kind of still on this path of sanctification, God, we, we still need to be more like you. We just pray, God, for your grace and helping us to be people that actually, like, live with your kingdom in mind. That actually live like Jesus did. They have that attitude where we're not seeking our own. God, let us be people that, that care more about you and your glory and, and that, 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 that care more about the, the good of others than we do about our own desires. God, we need you to be the one that transforms us in this. And so uh, we just come before you today. God, I pray that you'd move in this space here today. Lord, help us to let go of things that, that we might need to let go of. Um, help us to make changes we might need to, to make. And, and God, just help us to be people that trust you. So we love you. I thank you for who you are. And, and just pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.